The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, Not Under Law, But Under Grace. And the text that is the subject now of our consideration of God's word this morning is found in Romans chapter 6, particularly verse 14, and a statement by the Apostle Paul now that, that speaks to a Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. A Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. It's a statement now in verse 14 that perhaps more than any other statement in the Bible, it is, is misunderstood misapplied, abused by those who would twist the scriptures to their own destruction. It's a text, our text this morning, a text that uh, has been used often to set aside the law of God. It's a text that is often used to excuse even the worst kinds of sin from those who profess to be Christians. It's a text that is often used to deceive the simple-minded a text that is used to justify lost sinners who are still bound in their sin, in their iniquity, um, to render obedience to God as even optional or legalistic. It's a text that deceivers have used in the history of the church to fill the professing church with weeds. You are not under law, but under grace. It's a text that many throughout history have often gotten wrong. Now, most professing Christians, most professing Christians wouldn't simply come out and say, I can live as I please. We know there's something wrong with that statement. Uh, They know, most professing, professing Christians know that's not right. There's something wrong with that kind of attitude. But it's often that very attitude of heart that is exposed when our will comes into conflict with the revealed will of God that is expressed in his law. We wouldn't say, I can live how I I please, or I can live how I want. But often that's the, the attitude that we live with, or the attitude that we express, if not with our lips, then with our actions. It's the attitude that's expressed when our will comes into direct conflict with the will, the revealed will of God, and that revealed will of God primarily communicated, expressed in his law. I remember being um, a professing Christian in college. I was a Chino, a Christian in name only. (laughs) Would have called myself a Christian, but I didn't act like a Christian. And uh, I was living in my sin uh, shamefully and called myself a Christian. And I had a guy come up to me. It was a, a guy that I was attending classes with. He was doing his PhD work when I was there for my master's degree. And he um, came up to me. He knew I professed to be a Christian. And he also knew I was living in sin. And he came up to me and he said to me, Mark, let me get this, this Christianity thing right. right. He's an atheist, professed to be an atheist. He said, Christianity is essentially you can live how you want to live. But as long as you ask for forgiveness, then everything's okay. And I thought for a moment about what he said. I didn't pierce my heart until later. But I thought about what he said. And I said, you know what? Yeah, that sounds right. right? I live how I want to live, and I go to the Lord for forgiveness. Without saying those kinds of words, many professing Christians live just as I did. Right? They live in exactly the same way that I did. Uh, But I was a Christian in name only. And if I had died, I would have perished in hell. That attitude is often the attitude expressed when our will comes into conflict with the will of God, with the law of God, and often it's by abusing or mishandling our text this morning that the law of God is simply set aside in favor of our own lusts. It becomes an excuse by which we can live how we want to live, sin up, sin it up like we want to do, right? And get away with it, essentially. I want this, but God has said no. And he said no because it's for our good. It's good that he has said no. I want to do that, but God has said you must not. I don't want to do those things, but God has said you must. And that professing Christian, deceived and in bondage to his sin, replies... I'm not under law, I'm under grace. 
I know I do those things that he tells me not to do. I know that I fail to do those things that he tells me I must do. I even feel guilty about it sometimes. Maybe you've thought that before. I even feel guilty about it sometimes. I really do, right? But I know that he'll forgive me. I know that he'll forgive me. And if they don't block the existence of God out of their consciousness altogether... What is the text and what is the heart attitude that is most often employed to rescue that conflicted sinner from his guilt, from his shame? I'm not under law, I'm under grace. God will forgive me. Right? How often, let me ask you who preach the gospel out at the abortion mill every week, how often do you hear men and women going to the mill to murder their baby say that very thing, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, and they walk into an abortion mill to murder their baby. How often before a man cheats on his wife or a woman divorces her husband, how often do they say to themselves, I know God will forgive me. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. You tell me I'm in sin, you're being judgmental. Right? You tell me I must obey, you're being legalistic. We're not under law, we're under grace. You see how the text is twisted, right? Essentially the heart attitude is this, I can live how I want to live. I can live for myself. As long as I go to Jesus for forgiveness, I'm going to be okay in the end. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. It's that attitude. Is, is that attitude really indicative of the Christian life? Is that what the Christian life is supposed to be? Is that what it's all about? Did I have it right when I was in college? I can live it up in my sin. I know I'm okay because I can go to Jesus for forgiveness. Is that the way that it works? Is that what our text this morning really means? Is that what the Bible is teaching? What does it say about me? What would it say about you and your true spiritual condition before God if you can look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where he bled and died in the stead of ruined sinners and say, that's my attitude towards sin. I can live as I please. Is that the Christian life? Is that what the Bible teaches? In Romans chapter 6, Paul has been describing a genuine Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. Paul says we can't. We can't live that way. What is the Christian's ongoing relationship to their sin? And in our text this morning, Romans chapter 6 verse 14 is a summary of what Paul has explained so far. Is it consistent? Is it even possible for a Christian who has turned to Christ in faith for deliverance from sin to then continue to live in an unbroken or unchallenged pattern of sin in their life? Is it even possible? And to do so, to continue in sin using grace as an excuse. That's going to be helpful for us to consider our context. Paul opened this discussion on the subject of sin in the Christian's life with a question in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I live in sin with grace as my excuse? Can I just simply live as I want and go to Jesus Christ for forgiveness? Many professing Christians live in open rebellion against God's law. They live in open defiance of God's commandments given over to pornography, given over to sexual immorality. The divorce rate in the professing church is the same as the divorce rate in the world. What does that say about those people who are living in claiming to live a life for Jesus Christ. They're given to selfishness, living for themselves. Professing Christian husbands, wives, given over to anger. Professing Christian children, given over to disobedience. Sin taking place when God's revealed will comes into conflict with our own will. Well, Paul's answer in Romans chapter 6 is emphatic. It, is it consistent with the Christian life for someone who has turned to Christ in faith for deliverance from sin? Is it consistent for that one to continue living in sin? Paul says, verse 2, certainly not. May it never be, God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live any longer in it? Do you see the point? Now, the key to understanding our passage is found in the meaning of that little phrase, verse 2, died to sin, died to sin. What does it mean that Christians have died to sin? Now, Paul is very clearly asserted that the natural man is born under the dominion of sin. You and I were born under sin's 
dominion, wrecked, ruined under the control of sin. If you stop for a moment and examine yourself, examine your life, just like I've done, right? That little trip down memory lane when I was in college, it didn't end with college, right? Our life of sin doesn't begin there. It doesn't end there. Man is born and lives under the dominion of sin. Born in sin, man is ruled by a harsh and evil slave master. His faculties, his members, his flesh, given over to do the bidding of sin, given over to do the bidding of uncleanness, and that, having been given over, results in sinful thoughts, it results in sinful emotions, sinful affections, sinful desires, sinful hopes and dreams, sinful imaginations, sinful actions. To borrow words from the Apostle Paul, sin reigns in your mortal body. Do you see? Sin reigns in your mortal body. In other words, you will die because of sin. Sin reigns such that under sin's power, you and I present our members. We present our faculties as instruments or means of unrighteousness. In other words, you sin with your mind. You sin with your mouth. You sin with your hands. Out of your heart pours forth pride, pours forth selfishness, lovelessness, thanklessness. Sin's mastery over every human being born as a descendant of Adam is one of complete dominance. Sin dominates you. That dominance culminating in the sinner's death and in his eventual judgment. If you continue to live as a slave of sin, you will die and you will perish in your sin. Now that's what the Bible says about you and I, and the Bible is true on that fact. Sin's mastery over every human being is one of complete dominance. That's why we need the grace of God at work through the gospel, right? That's why we need the gospel. We need to be set free from that slavery, If you're here this morning, you've never been set free from that slavery. You are under the dominion of sin. You need freedom. Freedom from sin's power. Freedom from sin's dominance. Freedom from sin's mastery. You need to be set free in Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, the good news, when a sinner puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation... He is brought into a spiritual union with Jesus Christ such that those who turn to Christ in faith are said to be in him, represented by him. We are, as Paul would say, baptized into him, so to speak. Paul says baptized into his death. What does that mean, baptized into his death? Well, when Jesus Christ died physically at the cross for those he came to save, he bore their punishment. He took their penalty. If you're in Christ through faith, he took your penalty. And he bore upon himself the punishment that you deserve for your sin. You see? He took it upon himself. Doing that because he took your punishment, the penalty of the law, upon himself, he broke sin's dominion over you. He died, verse 10, to the power or to the dominion of sin once for all those he represents through their faith. Such that when his own are united to him then through faith, through the means of their faith, his death to the power and dominion of sin becomes our death to the power and dominion of sin. The old man, our old man, that old, sinful, wretched ruined college kid and that sinful, wretched, ruined by sin adult and that sinful, ruined, wretched child, that sin, that dominion of sin, that old man is crucified. Crucified together with him in our own spiritual death to sin. The body of our sin is done away with. We are forgiven, praise God. That's verse six. We are set free then from the power and the penalty of sin, verse 7. And we are no longer slaves. No longer slaves. You see what a a glorious blessing the gospel is. No longer slaves of sin. No longer under sin's dominion. Now, if it's true that we've been united to Christ in the likeness of his death to sin, and that is true, 
then certainly it is also true, this is Paul's point, it's also true that we have been raised with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. That's verse 5. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead in the power, in power to the glory of God, even so we are raised from spiritual death in our sin to new life in Christ to the glory of God. Do you see? Christian won't live the same anymore, right? That old man crucified, that heart of stone crushed, replaced by a new heart, replaced with the spirit of God. That same power, Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, right? That same power with which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now the same power at work in us who believe to the end that we might walk in newness of life. We can overcome sin now through his power at work in us. And the Christian life becomes a life battling against sin, as our brother talked about earlier in the call to repentance. So then, think with me. Because a genuine Christian is united to Jesus Christ through faith, united to Christ in his death to sin, united to Christ in his resurrection to life, freed from slavery to sin, empowered to walk in new life, the thought that that Christian could then continue to live in open rebellion against God is simply absurd. It's absurd, foolish. The thought that that Christian could continue to live in sin is simply unthinkable. We are dead dead to our old slavery to sin. We are now alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been freed from our slavery to sin that now we might go and serve another master. Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 where he says that we have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's a new life, do you see? A new life. This is true of all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's true of every single one who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So having laid out his case then for that fact, in verses 1 through 10, Paul then commands Christians on the basis of those truths, he commands Christians to faith in Jesus Christ in response to those facts, to live in light of those facts. And Paul lays out those commands, then beginning in verse 11. And on the basis of his death to sin for you, on the basis of his resurrection to life for you, Paul says, reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed to sin. Consider yourself to be dead to sin. I am dead to sin. And reckon yourself to be alive to God in union with Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see? Having embraced those realities through faith, claiming them if you will, name it and claim it, right? Claiming them, if you will, through faith, now the Christian begins the fight. Now, Paul says, fight the ongoing influence of remaining sin and corruption by faith. Fight in faith. Do not allow sin to reign or to exert its power over your mortal body, verse 12. In other words, the Christian's relationship to sin, now that we're freed from its mastery, the Christian's relationship to sin is one of resistance. It's not one of ongoing capitulation, right? It's not one of ongoing cohabitation with sin, living openly in sin. It's one of resistance. Paul says, do not present the faculties or the members of your body as the means by, whereby you sin, verse 13, but rather present yourself to God as you really are in union with Jesus Christ, and alive to God rather than dead in your sin. Present your members, Paul says, your heart, your mind, your faculties, your body. Present your members as the means by which you pursue righteousness to God rather than presenting them as the means by which you pursue unrighteousness to sin and death. That, boys and girls, is the Christian life. You see? That's Paul's point. You can't continue to live the way that you once lived. It's impossible for a Christian to do that. There's so much at work in him and for him and through him to secure that blessedness from God of being free from sin's dominion. What Paul is describing here is at the heart 
of what it means to live for Jesus Christ. It's at the heart of what it means to live for him by faith. When we live for Jesus Christ by faith, you and I trust in God's words for those realities that are true of us in our union with Christ. We trust him that his word is true, right? We rely upon the spirit for strength, for understanding, and we do that. We trust him and we rely upon the spirit and we do that as we then put forth active, ongoing effort to fight sin's determination to reassert its mastery, to reassert its dominance over us. And we fight by faith in light of those truths to present ourselves then to him as instruments to righteousness. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, to live for him. In other words, what does that mean? That means that we exercise our mind, we exercise our mind renewed in knowledge after the one who created us, right, what Paul says. We exercise our new will, now freed from the dominance of sin, and all that from a heart in which has been shed abroad the love of God by the Spirit. All that such that when temptation comes to you, brother, sister, when temptation arises in your circumstances, we respond negatively by not presenting the faculties or the members of our body uh, as means by which we sin, and we respond positively by presenting ourselves as slaves of God as means by which we pursue righteousness now to the glory of God. And those who live in that kind of faith-filled, spirit-wrought dependence upon God, those who are laboring in faith to live for his glory in that way, have this promise from God that is in our text this morning to encourage them in the battle. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, you are under grace. That's awesome. That promise is awesome. Now first, from verse 14, I want you to notice the substance of that promise. Notice the substance of the promise. Sin will not have dominion over you. Notice that's not an imperative. It's not a command. Paul isn't telling you to do something. He's telling you to believe something, right? To trust him for something. That is an indicative. It's a statement of fact, and it follows upon the commands that come before. If you do these things, in other words... If you resist sin by faith in this way, if you fight in this way, sin will not have dominion over you. What a precious promise from God. This is a promise to those who live and fight by faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's a promise, and it's a promise we can trust him for. Now notice next, notice the reason or the basis for that promise. Because, verse 14, you are not under law, you are under grace. The fact that a genuine Christian is not under law, but rather under grace, is the guarantee that sin will not exercise its dominion. Do you see? It's a guarantee. Sin will not dominate you. Why? Because you're not under law, you're under grace. The fact that you are not under law, but rather under grace, is the fact that ensures the outcome. You are not under law. You are now under grace. Therefore, you can take it to the bank. Sin will not have dominion over you. It's a promise, okay? So what in the world does Paul mean by that statement? What does he mean? First, notice with me, think. Note that we're dealing with two categories. Two categories, not three, not four, and not some gray area in between. There are two categories. You, this morning, as you sit here, you are either under law or you are under grace. And this is critically important. Life or death to you, right? Two categories, law or grace. Second, notice this. By the use of the word law, Paul is not referring only or specifically to the Mosaic law from the Old Covenant, right? But to God's law more generally. Some would say this is Moses. This is referring to Moses. doesn't apply to us in any way. 
No, that's not the case. The word here, law, is anarthrous. For you guys studying grammar, meaning that it's not preceded by the article the. That little word the is missing. It's not the law, it's law, right? He's referring to law more generally. He's including, the law of Moses would certainly be included in that, but he's speaking of law more generally. He's referring more broadly to our relationship as God's creation, our relationship to the law of God. And he's essentially saying this, for us to be under law is for us to be in sin, right? For us to be under law is for us to be in sin. If you remember from Romans chapter two, it was a few sermons ago. Um, Gentiles, in Romans chapter two, Gentiles were without excuse. Why were they without excuse? Because they show the work of the law written upon their hearts, right? Their conscience bearing witness, either excusing or accusing them. They are under the judgment if you will, under the judgment of natural law, that work of the law written on their hearts. That's not the Mosaic law. That's the law of God written on the heart of those who he's created in his image, okay? The Jews, however, Romans chapter 2, received the law of Moses. They received the law. Their boast was in the law. They were instructed in the law of Moses. They had received the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's law on stone, tablets of stone. So they were under the law of Moses, if you will, and Paul says there, Romans chapter 2, that they would perish or be judged under that law. Adam was under the law of God, wasn't he? Under positive law. Don't eat the fruit of that tree, God said. And what did Adam do? Adam sinned. You and I are born under law. We're born under God's law. Because we were created by God, we have the work of the law written upon our hearts, we have the responsibility to obey God as his creation. And the law, brothers and sisters, the law demands perfect obedience. And what do you and I do from the first time we can remember it? What do we do? We sin. We sin. To be under law is to be under the dominion of sin. Do you see? The wages of our sin is death, death. So notice with me third then, notice with me third, to be under law is to be under the dominion of sin. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law. Paul says that to the, to the Christian, okay? If you were under the law, Paul might say, sin would have dominion over you. Do you see that from verse 14? Why, why, why is that true? Because sin exercises its dominion through the condemning power of the law. Sin wields, as it were, the condemning power of the law over those who are under the law. The law has basically two powers, essentially two powers. The law has the power to command, and the law has the power to condemn. The power to command and the power to condemn. To be under law is to be under the law's condemnation. Why? Because you and I are born sinners. You and I are born sinners. The law says this, you and I do that. The law says don't do this, and you and I go out and do it. Some form or fashion, right? The law says do this, and we rebel, and we don't do that. Look at Romans chapter 3. Back up a couple of chapters. Romans chapter 3. And look at verse 19. If the law, the law has the power to command, it has the power to give precepts, to say this is right and that is wrong. The law also, because it has the power to command, has the power to condemn any violation of its precepts. So when the law's precepts are violated, the law says guilty, right? The law says guilty. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 19. Now we know, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be justified, that every person could be declared righteous because they're so good. Is that what it says? No. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What does the law say? Guilty. 
guilty, guilty. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no one, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous in God's sight. Why? For by the law is the knowledge of our sin. Do you see? There are essentially two aspects of the law's power. It commands and it condemns. The law demands and it damns. The law has power to prescribe what is righteous as opposed to what is unrighteous, to prescribe what is right as opposed to what is wrong, what is good as opposed to what is evil. And the law has the power to say to every single person in the world who is under the law, you are guilty. Why does it exert such power? Because you and I are sinners. There's no one who's lived righteously. You are a sinner dead in your sin, guilty before God, bearing the shame of your rebellion against him, and the law exposes it. Like a searing spotlight, the law tells you that it's so. You don't think that it tells you that it's so. You and I need to sit down together, and I'll show you that it tells you it's so, okay? You find any brother or sister who's been here any length of time who knows the Bible, knows the law of God, let them sit with you and take you through the law of God and show you. You may think to yourself, I'm not a sinner. Oh, you're a sinner. And the Bible says you're a sinner. And any brother or sister who's been here any length of time can sit down with you across the table and share with you the law of God and show you what the Bible says about how you live and how God views you. And that's the bad news, right? That's the bad news. But that's why we need good news. And that's why God has given good news, right? The law has the power to say to every single person who is under the law, you are guilty. The law says, don't seek right standing with God here, right? The law says, don't seek justification here. Don't seek to be reconciled to God through me, the law would say. Why? Because you're a sinner. And sin exercises its dominion, its power, through the condemnation of the law, the condemning power of the law. Do you realize that if we sat down and carefully went through each of the Ten Commandments, do you realize that all of those, with all that those commandments imply, with all that those commandments entail, you would be miserably and hopelessly guilty of breaking every single one of them? Every, well, I've never murdered. Jesus Christ has said, have you not heard? If you've been angry without a cause, you've murdered that one in your heart. To be under law is to be under its condemning power. Look at Romans chapter 7. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And look there at verse 7. If this is the power of the law, Paul asks the question in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law evil? Certainly not. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. You see what Paul's saying, right? No, the law is not sin. The law is good. The law is pure. A, a, a cold glass of pure water on a hot day. It's good. But the law tells me that I am not good. The law confronts me with its command. I'm forced before the law to acknowledge my sin and then to acknowledge that sin has dominion over me. But sin doesn't stop there. Sin also dominates me in another way. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the law, produced in me all manner of evil desire. In other words, I heard the commandments and I wanted to sin, right? Don't touch that. And what does the child do? <laughs> you know, it's like that's just a representative of our own wicked hearts. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once <laughs> without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived its dominance over me, as it were, and I died. And the commandment, verse 10, which was to bring life, do this and live, I found rather to bring death. Why? Because I can't do that. There's this principle in my members. There's this, this old principle in my flesh, as it were, that rages war against what I know to be right and good. 
and I do the very things that I know to be sinful. I do the very things that I know to be in rebellion against God. And that law that was supposed to bring life, he finds rather to bring death. For sin, verse 11, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Sin, sin also dominates you to death, you see, to death. Has then what is good become death to me? Has the law become death to me? Certainly not. But rather, sin, so that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, the law. So that sin, through the commandment or through the law, might become exceedingly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. So brothers and sisters, to be, to be under law is to be under the dominion of sin. Not because the law communicates moral precepts that define right and wrong, but because the law condemns as sin that which is a transgression of its precepts. You see? We're under the dominion of sin because the law condemns as sin that which is a violation of its precepts. And it places all men under what Paul refers to then as the curse of the law. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This truth places every single person born in Adam under what Paul refers to here as the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? It is the law's condemnation. The law's condemnation. Okay? Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 10. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law, you could say for as many as are under law, are under the curse. What does that mean? Right? As many as are under the law are under the curse, under the law's condemnation. The Judaizers, who this was essentially written about, they believed that the works of the law were necessary to avoid the curse. We have to do works of the law to avoid the curse. Obedience to the law necessary to exempt yourself from its curse. However, Paul says here precisely the opposite. Anyone, anyone who would take up good works or take up the law as a means whereby they could secure their own righteousness before God, anyone who would take up any work and think for a moment that that work would somehow earn God's favor, or earn a right. There's all kinds of false religions that do this, right? All kinds. Roman Catholicism, the cults, they all teach the same thing, right? Anyone who would take up any work, believing somehow that that work earned them favor with God, will only find themselves under its curse. Why? Why? Verse 10. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in some things, in all things. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul reminds us that the law of God demands perfect and complete obedience. Any transgression of the law results in swift, merciless, and unbending application of the law's penal sanction which is guilt and death, referred to here by Paul as the curse, the condemning power of the law. Verse 11. So, therefore then, that no one is justified by the law of the God, uh, law in the sight of God is evident. That means no one's going to be justified by the law. Right? That should be evident. No one is going to be justified by the law in the sight of God because those who are declared just shall live and live eternally by their faith. Justification or right standing with God is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith. The law and faith are mutually exclusive. You're either going to seek righteousness through the law, which good luck with that, right? 
Or you're going to seek the righteousness of God, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is given to you as a gift from God through faith, through trusting in Jesus Christ for his righteousness, right? One of the two, the two are mutually exclusive. The law is not of faith, verse 12, but rather the man who does them shall live by them. The law for justification or faith for justification, they are mutually exclusive. Anyone who submits himself to the law or good works for right standing with God must live or die by the law. He will not attain to eternal life through faith, okay? It's one or the other. Choose this day whom you'll serve, right? However, for those who put faith alone in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law, if you say, I'm abandoning living life for myself, I know I'm a sinner. God, you know full well I'm a sinner. I'm not going to rely on my own works, Lord. The only hope I have is to rely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you can say that from the heart, I believe, O Lord, that you have died on the cross bearing my sin and shame. I believe, Jesus Christ, that you have given yourself in death to bear my guilt. And I am trusting you and you alone to have saved me from my sin that I might live with God eternally. If you can say that, then verse 13 applies to you. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, in my place, in my stead, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why would Jesus Christ do such a thing? Why? Love. Love. He is determined to set his love upon you. And so he goes to the cross to take your punishment in your place. Do you see? For those who are trusting Christ in faith, apart from any works of the law, he bore their sin at the cross. In bearing our sin at the cross, he bore the condemning power of the law that was against us. By suffering in our place, the condemning power of the law that was against us was unleashed upon him. And it was fully exhausted against him, fulfilled in its entirety when he extinguished it on our behalf. Do you see? Such that for those who are united to him through faith, he ended the law's condemnation that was against us. We are no longer under the condemning power of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross ended the law's sanctions against us. It didn't end the law. He didn't do away with the law. He ended the law's penalty. Do you see? He ended the law's condemning power. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. That which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. The Lord says that himself. Verse 14, why did he do it? So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, to be under law refers to being under the law's condemning power. Sin exercises dominion over a sinner through the law's power to condemn the sinner. So that when Paul states the promise, then in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, turn back there, when he states that promise in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, that sin will not have dominion over you, that is only true, only true, because Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the condemnation of the law that had been against us. Because of Jesus Christ, we're no longer under the law's condemnation. Rather, we are now, we are now under the operations of his grace. Removed from condemnation, and that by grace, right? By grace. And put under God's grace, given pardon, forgiven of our sin. Now, think with me. Many others, many others would often then go so far as to say that not only are we free, because of Romans chapter 6, verse 14, not only are we free 
from the condemning power of the law, but we are also free from the commanding power of the law. That somehow in all of this, Jesus Christ has done away with the law altogether. Right? That's what they would assert, and that's what they would believe. There are many, many who would assert that. Among them, a dispensationalist. You have to be careful sometimes what you listen to and who you listen to. Who would say that the law, the law does not apply to the Christian today. It has been done away with in Jesus Christ. We're not any longer under, under its condemning power, but we're not any longer under its con- commanding power. Not only free from the power of the law to demand its penalty, but free from the power of the law to command its precepts. Free from the law's power to determine right from wrong. Free from the law's power to distinguish between that which is righteous from that which is unrighteous, right? Free from the law's authority to judge your conduct as righteous or unrighteous, right or wrong, good or evil, right? And Romans chapter 6, verse 14 is generally the text that is used to assert that the power or authority of the law, not only to condemn, but also to command, has been ended for the one who believes in Jesus Christ. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. They would deny, in other words, the third use of the law in Scripture. First use of the law is its civil use, to serve as a restraint on evil. The second use of the law from the Bible is to serve as a mirror. It shows us our sin that it might point us to Jesus Christ. The third use of the law, and this is the the use of the law we're talking about, is to be a guide to life for the Christian, to tell us how we should live as God's redeemed people. They would deny the third use of the law. The law has nothing to do, nothing to say to me, they would say, right? I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And all that Jesus Christ now expects of me is to love, to love God and to love my neighbor. Well, let's see if that holds up. Let's see if that holds up. Turn with me to Romans 13. Romans 13. That's their premise. That's their assertion. Not only free from the condemning power of the law, but free from its commanding power. The law of God has essentially been done away with in Jesus Christ. Does that hold up by the testimony of Scripture? Romans chapter 13, look at verse 8. We are to love our God. The law is summarized in this, doesn't the Lord say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are summaries of the first and second table of the law. Right? We're to love. Well, what is it that defines the moral boundaries and the duties that are associated with love? Right? Those duties prescribed for loving God and loving our neighbor. What is it that defines what that love is to look like? Are we to come up with that ourselves? Right? And in all our infinite wisdom, in all of our loveliness, right? Well, I'm going to decide for myself what is loving and what isn't loving. That's going to lead down a, a pretty bad path pretty quick. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has abolished the law. Now, he who loves one another has fulfilled the law, hasn't gone away. Love fulfills the law. Well, how do we know how we're to love? How is love supposed to conduct itself? In what way does love fulfill the law? It's not left to us to determine what is loving, right? In all of our wisdom, what seems right to a man, as if we were left to determine what is loving and what isn't. Listen, if we determined what is loving then someone might decide that it's most loving for the children if mom and dad divorce because they can't get along. Is that loving? No, it's not loving. What's loving? Mom and dad, obey the covenant that you've made in marriage, obey the Lord in righteousness, and live together in love as a good example for your children. That would be loving, right? What would be loving is to obey God and love one another in your marriage. That is obedience to God. Well, what if we decide that it's most loving to, for a woman to have an abortion rather than bringing a child into this world where they can't afford her? What are the boundaries of love? How should love act? How do we determine what is loving? Verse 9. For the commandments, what are those commandments? Those are the law of God, right? 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. That's the second table of the law. The second table of the law tells us how we are to love our neighbor. And if there is any other commandment, verse 9, all are abolished. No, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Paul does not say that these commandments are abrogated or abolished. These commandments are not done away with by the law of love or by the law of Christ or by the law of liberty or whatever you want to call it. This simply says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and that is a summary of what the law teaches. These, he says, are rather summed up in this saying. In other words, this saying is simply a summary of the law, not a replacement of the law. Do you see? Verse 10, love, genuine love, biblical love, law-commanded love, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's loving to your neighbor to preserve his life, right? (laughs) It's loving to honor the covenant that he has made with his own wife and not covet his wife, isn't it? It's honoring or it's loving to your neighbor to respect his ownership of his property and to refrain from stealing from him. To not covet those things which belong to him. Do you see? The law sets the boundaries of biblical love. It doesn't do away with the law. Biblical love doesn't do away with the law. Selfishness that seeks to sneak in undiscerned under the guise of love is exposed by the law. Right? Anything that we would, any erroneous form of law, any selfish form of law, any worldly form of love that attempts to sneak in undiscerned, undiscerned is going to be exposed by the law of God. How is love to be exercised? We turn to the law, right? Is it truly loving to presume to exercise love with no concern for moral boundaries? No, it's not truly loving. Love is defined, defined by moral boundaries. Love is guarded. Love is guided by the moral law of God. So when Paul says we're not under law but under grace, he does not mean that the law has no commanding authority over us. He means that the law has no condemning authority over us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We often find this principle or this notion, this idea, applied to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment. And we don't have to gather on Sunday as the people of God to worship God. It's not a Christian Sabbath, so to speak, because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, has been done away with. Try that with any other commandment, right? I'm going to steal your lunch today, and I can do that because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and there is no law that applies to me, so I'm going to take your hamburger, first chance I get. (laughs) (laughs) It's absurd, Right? It's absurd. The fourth commandment is the fourth commandment. <laughs> it's a part of the ten commandments. The law of God. And there would be those who would say, you don't have to worry about keeping that. Absolutely absurd. Absurd. We're not under law any longer. We're under grace. Paul has been making an argument for the Christian's freedom from the rule or reign of remaining or indwelling sin. A freedom that was secured for us by the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And it's now a freedom that we're not to use to disobey God or to negate the law or to live in neglect of the law. It's a freedom that we're to use to fight sin, right? To resist the influence of sin to present our members as instruments of unrighteousness. And it's a freedom that we now have been given in order to present our members, to present ourselves as instruments to righteousness to God. In other words, we're not freed from sin so that we can serve ourselves. We're freed from sin that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean then? In closing, what does Paul mean then by referring to Christians as under grace? You're not under law. I think that should be hopefully clear to you. But we're under grace. Grace is being given that which we do not deserve. The Lord has given us abundant, manifest, beautiful, and wondrous blessings. Those blessings we don't deserve. Why? Because we're sinners. 
We don't deserve them. That's grace. We're given those things by grace. So what does it mean that we are under grace? Chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. And look at verse 20. What does it mean that we're under grace? Chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Do you see that now? But where sin abounded under the law, grace abounded much more. Grace floods in, floods in to help, floods in in forgiveness, floods in in love, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace in power, right, might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it means to live under or to be under grace. It means to be under the abounding operations of God's grace, to be under the lavished pouring out of God's grace at work through the gospel, where grace is operative, grace is working, grace is powerful in the Christian's life. Far from being a license or an excuse to sin, grace is a promise that sin will not have dominion over you. It's a promise. Far from being reason to disregard the law, Grace gives us every reason to pursue righteousness under the law, right? To pursue righteousness, obedience to the law. Verse, chapter 8, verse 3, listen. Chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be done away with. No, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Why is that? How is it possible that we could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? How? Because we are under the reign of grace. We are under the reign of grace. Freed by grace from the power of sin's reign. Freed by grace from the power of death. Freed by grace from the law's condemnation. And free now by grace to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law through faith in the power of his spirit. You'll never do that through the law. You'll never be good enough through the law. You will never make it through the law. The law was never intended to be the means by which sin's dominion would be ended. Think with me, the law is powerless. The law can command, the law can condemn, it has no power to save you, it has no power to help you, it has no strength to give, it can't work in you to the glory of God, it can do nothing. The law is impotent. Therefore, to be under law is to be under the dominion of sin, to be hopeless, to be miserable, to be doomed, and to be damned. But if you are in union with Jesus Christ through faith, trusting in him, right, trusting in him, if you will trust in him, rather than attempting any kind of right standing or favor with God through your own works, then Paul says you're under the reign of grace Grace delivers you from your bondage to sin. God, through his grace, has rescued you from bondage to death and sin. It's a promise. Sin will not have dominion over you any longer. It's grace that empowers you. Grace that preserves you. Grace that fuels your faith and boldens your hope, grants you joy. All to the praise for eternity. All to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Lord, that through his death at the cross, through his resurrection, through his finished work, we can, not by our own works, somehow earn favor with you, but because of his perfect work, because of his righteous, give, righteousness given to us as a gift, through our faith in him, through trusting in him, we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be indwelt by your spirit. We can be given grace and mercy. We can be adopted into your household now as children of God. 
and we can live the Christian life and in eternity praise your name and worship our Lord Jesus Christ all because of your grace at work through the gospel to save us. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious gift. Thank you for your wisdom in setting aside this day on which we rest from our normal labors to worship you uh, for all the labor that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll do that with the saints in eternity. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.